0: so you can make your creative dreams possible. Go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level to learn more and enroll now. Enrollments are open for only a short time. So please, if you're interested and you're ready to take your interiors to the next level, go to nataliewalton.com forward slash next level. I'm Natalie Walton. And this is Imprint, a podcast about creating a home and life you love. Before we start today's episode, I just want to thank you so much for listening and for your beautiful messages via DM on Instagram and so many emails too about how much you're enjoying the podcast. It really means so much to me. Part of the reason that I created this podcast was to share the lessons that I've learned over the course of my career and life in the hope that it can help you in some way wherever you're at on your journey. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and found it useful in some way, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe rate and review, wherever you're listening to it today or share with a friend, because that's something that I often do when I find a podcast or an episode that I know will help or inspire someone on their journey. All right, let's get on with today's episode. This week, I want to answer one of the questions I've been asked a lot in relation to the publication of my book, Still the Slow Home. While the book focuses on the stories of 20 people from around the world and how they've embraced the principles of slow living into their homes, I don't really share my story except for a small author's note at the end of the book. So first of all, I thought I'd explain why. Obviously, my books are an investigation of an idea. They start with the seed of an idea on how I live at home, and I'm curious to see if others live that way too and really what I can learn from them. I'm always interested to know if these ideas are universal in some way, and so that's one of the things that I really love about travel is seeing how other people live, getting ideas from different cultures, and that's why my books cover the stories of people in different cultures and countries. On a practical level, my home certainly is not in its current state enough to fill a whole book. We've only really been here for about 18 months, and when I was creating this book, I was very much on the very start of my journey with this house. But I've definitely put the ideas behind the book into play, and it is a process and a journey to kind of go on this step of embracing more slow living ideas. But maybe one day when I can do it, I might be able to bring the ideas to life in a book. But for the moment, I'm really curious to learn about how other people have done it. And that's why it covers these 20 homes around the world. So I thought today I would share a little bit more about my slow journey, because in many ways it began during my years working on a magazine at a large publishing house, which some of you might not be aware of. One of the things that it actually made me feel quite sick to a large degree was when I was working on the magazine, we would be sent so many gifts and so many products to trial and to review. And it was, it was actually, it was just gross. It was this mass consumerism because obviously at that point, magazines were very strong and, and this is really continues on today by Instagram. So I've got no delusions that this is not happening. It's just happening in a different way. And we had a recipe section within the magazine, so we would be sent all sorts of food gadgets and they would be themed around different things. Um, Even just one of the things that just springs to mind just now, but there might be even charity fundraising drives for different really worthwhile causes, but they would produce and get all this sort of paraphernalia printed with various foundations and it would be on plastic um merchandise or all sorts of things and it was just it was just the sort of stuff that you really don't want to hold on to that isn't really meaningful and i just think there's so much so many better ways to really try and spread the word of these really worthwhile organizations and and kind of get their message out there but it wasn't obviously that was just something that sprung to mind just now um and I don't really want to mention them. I don't want to sort of shame them, but it's just this idea of sort of merchandise and also gadgets, especially when it comes to the kitchen. I, just a few that spring to mind. One was these um, to put on the ends of corn, and there would be these plastic corn shapes with little sort of prongs that you would stick into the end of corn, so you could pick it up and eat the corn without getting, you know, your fingers burnt or without them being too hot because obviously corn can be very hot to touch i mean it's nothing to say that you could use a fork or maybe even wrap um some kitchen towel or a napkin or whatever it is around it or just wait for it to cool down but Whatever your heart desire, there is a gadget out there for it. I mean, even again on corn, I was once sent uh, sent this um, gadget that was to slice down the corn, the rows of the kernels as a way to cut off the kernels. Now, we just use a knife and this is just such a great example of how it just can be madness, the amount of gadgets that's out there when really a knife is more than sufficient and really all that you need. So... That was just to do with some of the kitchen products that we would be sent. But then we'd be sent lots of products related obviously to homewares, different types of candles and various paraphernalia related to that. Then we would be sent – there was a beauty department and that is just a whole other level of consumerism. I mean it's not just related to lipsticks and nail polishes and the basic stuff, but every type of – I mean – It's just mind-blowing the types of products that would be sent you know different masks and gels and cleansing things and all in plastic of course and um and what they would do at the magazines would be have they would have a beauty sale and they would have these every magazine would often have them a couple of times a year often this money would actually go to charity so it was sort of a good way to at least some kind of good outcome from it but there would be one table that was with everything at $1 and then at $5 and $10 and beyond. And, um, and it was all this stuff. And and sometimes you'd look at it and think, Whoa, what on earth would you ever do with this? When would you ever use this? But there's just this mass consumerism. And it was a really big mindset um, transition, I think, from one generation to another. That just because we can make something doesn't mean to say that we should. And it really put me off consumerism in a major way, ironically enough, just as in many ways, actually working as a journalist and reporter for many years actually turned me off the news cycle and realized how it really doesn't necessarily share the news that you really want or need to know, but that's a whole other story. Um, So that was my first taste with consumerism out of control. And then a few years later, as I was using Instagram, I started to get that feeling again within my own feed. I actually had two on the go. I had my own personal one, and then I had a family lifestyle one. And it was just as a way to connect with other families and parents. And I started to be sent products by people, small businesses. And of course, it's lovely to small support small businesses. And many of them were ethical and, um, you know, trying to do the right thing in terms of how they produce their goods. But again, I started to get this sense that Instagram, and I could just see with the amount of online shops that were popping up everywhere, that it was also getting out of control, that all the sort of the gifting that was going on, and just the amount of stuff that was out there And again, I sort of had that moment of thinking, this just isn't right. We just don't need this amount of stuff. At about the same time, I was living in Sydney, and my family went on a holiday to Italy. This was in 2015. At the time, we were living in an inner city terrace in Sydney, and it was It was a reasonable size but we had quite a small back garden and we had just put plans in to um to get approval to renovate the place because we i mean it had a even though the house was quite big it had a tiny bathroom it was one of these homes where it wasn't very functional you sort of had the living room and dining room at the front and then just the kitchen at the back but it wasn't connected to the living or dining room so we wanted to create that indoor outdoor living area And so we just had the plans approved. We went overseas to have this holiday. And when we got to Italy and we stayed on, first of all, we stayed at a mill house in the north just outside of Milan. And then we went to stay on an organic farm uh, near Verona. And that really just changed our lives in so many ways. It just started to make us think about the choices that we were making and in particular, we saw our children running through these fields of wildflowers and they were just free and they had so much space. And we really were questioning, why were we living in the city? We didn't actually need to be in the city anymore. My husband had sold his business. I was working as a freelance stylist and writer, so I didn't have to be in the city. I could work from home to a large degree for most of the time. And, and it wasn't just... About the children and running around. And of course, but that was a big factor. It was just also this idea of when you're on holiday and you have that feeling where you just really slow down and to think, why can't we have this in our lives more often? You know, we don't need to sort of live in this hustle and bustle of the city. So, Pretty much as soon as we got back home, I think it was within that week, once we had unpacked, we started looking at properties to buy in the country. Initially, we were looking about an hour and a half north of Sydney because we still wanted to be within access to the city if we needed it. But it was really the start of our journey. And we found a place that was on 26 acres, it was a cedar-style cabin, it had a great character, and we could see it had so much potential. It definitely required a lot of work, but we were ready to do that, and um, it was more important that the place had the right feeling. So we bought this place, and one of the big lessons that we soon learned was that we had to find a way to live in harmony with our surrounds, because We were very much living in nature, so we were surrounded by trees. As I said, it was on 26 acres, so it was quite a large property. Most of it was bushland and there wasn't much cleared land around the actual house. And we had a bit of a baptism of fire. Within two weeks of moving in, we were flooded in. So at the time, I was actually six months pregnant with our fourth child. My husband was commuting to and from Sydney to do some painting on our old home before we rented that out. And because we were sort of just wanting to test the waters to see if we would like it there and whether we still wanted to have a little bit of that safety net about potentially moving back to Sydney if it all went pear-shaped. So. When we moved in, my husband said, We need to buy long life milk and really make sure we stock up the pantry. And I said, Oh, don't, you know, don't be so silly. Don't overreact. It's, you know, we're only like 10 minutes to the local town and it will be all fine. But I was eating my words when literally two weeks afterwards, we were flooded in. And so I was trapped in the house with three young children. Uh, and being six months pregnant. And on that same day, I had actually run out of milk. I had run out of bread. I had no way of getting to the shops. And I had no idea of how long I was going to be trapped in the house with the floodwaters because they were continuing to rise. My husband was in Sydney. He couldn't even get back into the house. He had to stay in a local hotel. And so... I suddenly had this huge new appreciation that we weren't living in the city anymore, but we really got a sense that of how important our environment is around us. Because a few months later, we actually ran out of water. We were living off rainwater tanks, and it was a real challenge to to live within our catchment of what we could collect through the rainwater tanks. So. We had to be really careful in terms of what we did. We had to, um we actually ended up putting a pump into the creek to pump up water to our grey water for the toilets. We used to have bowls in the sink so we could catch water to throw on what, ever we managed to have in the garden because it was so dry. Uh, It was in a period of drought as well. We would only flush the toilet if we absolutely had to. They were old toilets, so they used up a lot of water whenever they did. We had incredibly short showers. The children used to all share the same bath water and we just had to be really careful. And unfortunately, many times we had to buy in water to sort of meet our needs because we were just struggling so much with it. And then a few months later, we had to evacuate our home because of bushfires. So we really got a huge sense of the fragility of ecosystems and the impact that we were having on them as humans. And I realized that this is also part of the cycle of nature, but it really got us in tune to what was happening all around us. To give you another example, we had we got chickens because we thought, of course, we're in the country, we can be more sustainable, we can have chickens, free ranging. But what happened then was because we had the chickens, we got more snakes. And then we got guanas who were then breaking into the chicken house, killing the chickens to eat their eggs. So we got a dog to try and ward off the snakes and the guanas but then the dog ate all of the neighbor's chickens. So as you can see, (laughs) it was so many lessons that we were learning. It was a very steep learning curve, but it gave us such a huge appreciation for our environment, for the impact that we have. Just introducing the chickens had a huge impact on our environment, so we became really aware of this but even though we really we faced many challenges we also loved the freedom of the space spending time in the garden was one of our favorite things and the children did have this space to run free and they had this freedom which was it was so such a blessing in so many ways and we could go for many days without needing to leave the property once we got our pantry stocked you know we became quite self sufficient in that way and it really did feel very much like our kind of walden experiment for those of you who know that book and um and we did love it very much but we also we felt very protective of, of our little parcel of land and one of the things that was quite heartbreaking is that Every day, I would go for a walk along our country road, and every day I would see litter that had been thrown out of car doors and car windows. And um, and several times, we actually took the children with us to go and collect rubbish along the road, and we would fill a wheelbarrow full every time we did it. And it was quite disgraceful. And I, you know, I am going to say that often it was um, packaging from McDonald's from um, you know, Coke cans and things like that. So it's, you know, it really didn't, in, um, enamor me to those people, people who go to those types of places and certainly, you know, definitely who throw out their rubbish out of car windows, even actually this morning where we're living, which is in the Byron Bay area. And it's such a beautiful area. I picked up a, um, a plastic cup from McDonald's that somebody had thrown out of their car window and there was some more packaging from McDonald's. So, you know, it's this idea of like people being able to grab and get food from drive throughs and so on. Well, it's, it's, it, it has its own bunch of problems, but anyway, it really incensed me. This idea of people just throwing litter out of their car doors, because I just think that in this day there is absolutely no excuse for that. I just cannot understand why somebody wouldn't take it home and put it in their own bin. So as I mentioned, at the same time, it felt like consumerism was getting out of control. Instagram was growing at an exponential rate, and so was our capacity to purchase goods online. And while there were definitely more ethical brands, the truth was becoming increasingly murky, and I really didn't want to be part of the problem. So that sort of many ways became the starting point for investigating and doing so much research in relation to still the slow home because I wanted to try and make sense of it because there's so much information out there and sometimes it can feel a little bit conflicting or contradictory. Certainly when I was trying to find the homes, I was, you know, I did a few Google searches for sustainable homes and as soon as you do that, you find all these new builds and and I sort of think that sometimes that can be problematic too. I, which I will go on to explain in more detail but um you know I think that there's a lot to be said and not everyone can do that either you know so there's a lot to be said about trying to make small changes in your home and where you live right now so one of the biggest takeaways that I got from researching my book was that we just need to consume less full stop that's it consume less it will actually solve so many problems Because in one to two generations, we've really gone crazy buying more than we need. We notice this most when we go on holiday, in particular for us, when we go on holiday in our caravan and we're in this tiny 16 foot caravan. There's six of us in there and we have got such a simple selection of pieces. And yet we can live quite happily with all of that for a very long period of time. So and it makes us realize how little we actually need. So three questions that I ask myself are, do we really need it? Is it good quality? And what will happen to it at the end of its life? So I'm just going to sort of dive a little bit deeper on these questions and what I actually mean about them. So when I say, do we really need it? I ask myself, can we borrow it? If, for instance, it was something like, for some people it might be a a power tool, can you just borrow that off somebody? Or if you're interested in maybe starting sewing, maybe you can borrow somebody else's sewing machine to see if you actually do really want to get a sewing machine before you go out and purchase it. Can you rent it from somewhere? This is something that we have done a lot in the past, in particular in relation to tools and so on, is um, we've gone to the hardware store, even certain ladders, because we don't need to go out and buy a ladder. Some of them we would only use maybe once a year, but we'll go out and rent a ladder. And can you repair or repurpose something else for whatever you're doing? Certainly, we um, we often make things around our home and our property. Just during COVID, my husband and the children made a timber swing. We got some timber offcuts, got some rope, and they made it using the, what they already had. So there's so much like that that we can do. I mean, we even do things like repair shoes, you know, like if the sole comes apart and we'll just get some glue that so we can give them an extension life. But I really always try and see if there's a way that we can repair something before we go out and buy something new. And then can we buy it second hand? We've just done this with our son's bike. Most good quality bikes are significantly cheaper when you buy them second hand and they can still be in great condition. And most of our furniture is second hand. And just on homes themselves, when, as I mentioned, when I was researching about sustainable homes, I found so many articles about new builds and eco pods and all of these types of articles. But the more research that I did, the more I realized that quite often the most sustainable home you can have is one that's already built. And the same is true often with cars. The carbon footprint has already been spent Just to give you an idea, did you know that cement, the key ingredient in concrete, has a massive carbon footprint and accounts for about 2.2 billion tons, or 8% of the world's CO2 emissions, which is more than aviation fuel. Yet concrete is not often on the agenda or part of the discussion when we talk about having a smaller eco footprint. And if you actually look at so-called sustainable homes, so many of them are also made out of concrete, which I never quite understand. Because if cement were a country, it would be the third largest emitter in the world behind China and the US. So that's really something to think about before laying a new concrete slab or installing a concrete kitchen. And I realize that, yes, in many ways it is part of our life and sometimes it does need to be used. But I think that with everything we need to really consider, is this something that we need to do or is there a way around it? And that's actually something that came up with Emma Lane in the book, Still, she decided to actually use the existing concrete slab of her house, even though she had some other ideas initially, but to build the house on the existing slab so that, because she realized that what would she do with the old slab, she would have to bury it somewhere on her property. So this is something really to think about when you're, you're doing this within your home. So another question is to ask, is it good quality? Does the product come with a warranty? Can it be repaired? passed on or sold. So an example from our own home is our coffee machine. My mom actually gave it to me, so it was passed down, it was good quality, it was a and, um and then Recently, we've had um, the steam nozzle wasn't working. So my husband did some research and was able to find a part, replace that part. And so now this coffee machine is going to live on. So there's many examples of this where you can actually replace parts within certain products so that their life will go on for much longer than some other products that once one thing breaks, that's it, you have to throw the whole thing out, which just obviously ends up in landfill which I could also write a whole other episode just about that. And, you know, just on my son's bike, we're going to buy him a bike repair kit for his birthday because these are valuable skills for him to learn and hopefully he will appreciate his bike more and take better care of it when he has to fix it himself. So another question that we ask is, what will happen to the end of this product at the end of its life? Will it end up in landfill? Can it be recycled or can it be repurposed in some way? During our recent clean out of our office, I found a couple of boxes of CDs containing containing images from my work portfolio, and some of them also um, contain family photos. So we looked into this because now, of course, on many computers, you don't have a CD drive. So this has kind of become almost obsolete. I know that you can then buy some, but it's obviously in outgoing technology. And we did a little bit of research, and I don't know if you're aware of this because we weren't and it quite, was quite shocking, that did you know that CDs take a million years to break down, which again is quite heartbreaking. So what we did is we found a local recycling company that will recycle them. They will basically separate the plastic from the aluminium centre and they recycle all of it. For any of you who are based in local area, they're called Shredex, so that's who we have sent them off to and we're paying a fee to do it, but it's worth it in our minds. So another question that we ask ourselves is, can we source it or can we shop local? Obviously, when you do this, you save on food miles or carbon footprints, And again, this was a big idea that I got while researching still. It was the idea by Helena Norberg-Hodge that localization is one of the most effective countermeasures to globalization. And she did a great TED talk on this, which I really encourage you to watch. She says, economic localization is the key to sustaining biological and cultural diversity to sustain life itself. The sooner we shift towards local, the sooner we will begin to heal our planet, our communities and ourselves. So some of the ways that we do this is we always see if there's a local seller of a product first, when certainly when it comes to clothing or even when we're buying computers. So at the moment, again, going back to computers, but my MacBook, the battery um, needs fixing. So we're going to get that fixed by a local guy who can do that. So obviously it's prolonging the life of the product, but also it's it's helping somebody who's local rather than driving all the way to the Mac store, which is in Queensland. And at the moment the borders are closed anyway. We try and buy books from our local bookstore, The Book Collective, and support Australia Made whenever possible. So last year I was at a workshop and there was some Italian sparkling water and it really made me feel a little bit uncomfortable that, you know, within Australia we're importing Italian sparkling water. And this is just one little example of something that we can get something that's just as good, if not better, from Australia, and then you're not paying for all those carbon miles. And the same is true of so many products. And once upon a time, I think it used to be seen as prestigious to have an Italian sparkling water on your table. But now I think hopefully the tide is turning on terms of how we think about these things. Certainly when it comes to my business, Imprint House, we always first ask if we can source locally, and that's been one of the big questions since finishing the book is we've started to do this even more and introduced a range of local ceramics and looking at other products too. So the third big thing that we think about in terms of how we can live a little slower within our lives is to reduce waste Purchase goods with less packaging is a big one. So we are always looking out for ways that we can simplify this process. To give you an example, a simple example within our own home, we don't use soap that is in a plastic bottle. So we just use the bar soap. Obviously that is far less packaging. It's also um, just in terms of like how many soaps would fit into a box. You know, there's less, it's more economical in that sense too. And while there are many beautiful brands out there that do really lovely soaps in plastic bottles, it's just something that I don't want within my own home. So as I said, we use the bar soaps. For cleaning, we use bicarb soda, which comes in a cardboard box and is definitely one of the best cleaners and cheapest and least toxic ones out there. It can come just in a cardboard box. And we also um, use uh, vinegar. We buy it in bulk and use that for disinfecting. So while that does come in a plastic bottle, you know all these things we're trying to do to minimize the amount of waste that we have within our home and the amount of packaging too. Obviously, go to bulk food stores, and we buy our produce. Most of our produce from a local supplier who delivers it in a cardboard box, which we then return to him each week. And buy from the local food um, farmers' markets as well. So all of these little elements they all make start to add up and make a big difference. I also always refuse packaging in shops. So if somebody offers me um, even tissue paper or a paper bag, I most of the time, unless there's a good reason, I um, refuse it because I really don't need it. And you've got to think about all the resources that have gone to create those things. If the bag has been printed, then you gotta think about the inks that have been used and you know what's happened to the, the chemical waste that's gone from them. You've got to think about what happens to the actual paper bag. Is it just gonna go straight into the recycling? Well, that just seems like such a waste of resources. Um, there's so many elements to think about and it's just a simple way to to sort of push back. Something else that we do as well, which um, slightly relates to this idea of saying no, is we actually don't accept birthday presents for the children. So whenever we have a birthday party or a little get-together or a celebration for them, we always um, make a note to the other parents um, for no presents please and suggest that other children could perhaps just make a handmade card because really our children don't need anything and I do tend to find that what they end up is with a lot of plastic stuff that we just really don't want in our home and it's stuff that inevitably ends up in landfill too so i really want to discourage that as well and it's just it's just not necessary we just don't need it in our lives So, one other thing is to push back on the supply chain. So, this is something that definitely relates to our business imprint house. We're always pushing back on our suppliers who send goods in plastic. If they do, then we say to them that we don't want to receive goods in plastic, that we prefer if they could find a different way to package them. And um, certainly, we always recycle anything that does come that way and we use cardboard that has been recycled for our packaging and we ship plastic free to any of our customers. So these are all ways that we can start to make a difference. So just to recap, three of the big ways that we have embraced slow living at home is to one, consume less, two, shop and support local, and three, reduce our waste. And we also compost as well, which is a big part of obviously reducing waste. So this is a really big topic. It's too big for one episode. So well I will continue to share more of the key ways we have changed our ways in my next solo episode, and I hope you can join me then. I hope some of these ideas have helped you in some way. I'd love to know what works for you and the ways you've embraced slow living in your home and life. So please come and share your experience, tips and lessons over at our Facebook page. You'll also find show notes for this episode over at nataliewalton.com forward slash podcast. And you can also send me a message at nataliewalton on Instagram. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review and spread the love also on social media channels. Thank you to Jaeger Media for producing this podcast and the people of the Bunchalong nation where it was recorded. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Natalie Walton and you've been listening to Imprints.